I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Would you pray with me? Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the example of Habakkuk, for his hard questions that that we resonate with, and for your clear answer. Lord, help us to live by faith. Father, help us even this morning to learn uh, what it means to stand on the high places with sure footing, with confidence and security, to be safe in trusting you, walking, living by faith, even through uh, the most evil of days, that our hope would be in you, that we would have that joy untouchable, um, that it would resound to the glory of your great name. Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was talking with a friend just this last week in the coffee shop, chatting away, and of course, as it always does these days, the conversation turns to the pandemic and government overreach and government corruption and just the general chaos in this world. And, uh, and what struck me was when, when she commented that her friend was hoping to have a baby and, and she couldn't believe that anyone would bring a child into this world. And I'm sure there's a bit of exaggeration there. It's become just a, a thing we say um, just in order to say this world is messed up. And, and I get that. But that made me pause hearing that statement and just considering uh, the hopelessness that's possible. I mean, at what point do we say it's just not worth it anymore? This world is so messed up. uh, It is not a good place, period. Stop the ride. I want to get off. I'm done. It was a good reminder for me of how significant a thing it is, um, how important it is that we have the right source for our joy that our happiness, that our, our meaning and purpose in life uh, is, is put in the right place. Because if, if it's not, then what is the point of carrying on? What is the point of the darkness and, and walking through this? This is so important. And, and of course, while we were having this conversation, I had my computer and commentaries open to Habakkuk, and I'm looking at it going, here it is. This is the answer. We need, uh, first we see in in this passage, uh, a firm foundation. We need a firm foundation. Um, An untouchable joy, a joy that uh, that survives the mess of this world, uh, must have the right foundation, must have a firm foundation. And and guess what? Um, It shouldn't be a big surprise to us. Look around. This world... The, the pleasures and joys and luxuries and security and happiness in this world will never be that firm foundation. It won't happen. Habakkuk's opening line, uh, verse 17, is, is just, it's a serious downer. It, it's, it's depressing. Habakkuk um, talks about living through total loss, complete loss. Remember, he, he lives in an agrarian society. It's a world that, that revolves around farming. And, and, and so he uses these, these, this farming language, um, and it's significant. I, I think there's a bit of a progression here building along. So he starts off, verse 17, though the fig tree should not blossom. Well, figs were a delicacy. Figs were a, a delightful treat uh, in Israel. They loved figs, and it was nice to have figs. But if the figs are gone... 
It's not the end of the world. It's maybe for us would be like if the restaurants shut down. That stung a little bit. We didn't like that, but we got over it. Next he says, nor fruit beyond the vine. Well, the, the fruit that grew on the vines was grapes. This was wine. This was their everyday drink that they enjoyed that was their sustenance. Um, and so this is pressing a little bit more. Maybe for us we would be like if all the coffee went away. Um, I'm going to be grumpy for a few days. I'm going to tell you that. I'm going to have a bit of a headache, um, but I'll get over it. Next he says, the produce of the olive fail. Um, olives provided them with oil, oil that they used for cooking, oil that they used for their lamps that would burn to light their homes. And, uh, and so this is beginning to get a little more real. Maybe for us we would say, even if the electricity turned off, uh, that's beginning to become a problem. And then the fields yield no food. Now we're getting serious. Um, they grew grain for bread, and bread was an absolute staple in their society. Um, this is the beginning of starvation. This is the beginning of ep- economic collapse. And then he adds to that, the flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. And this just rounds out the rest of their livelihood. This is it. This is everything. Um, cattle, goats, sheep um, were a symbol of your wealth. It was the majority of your, of your net worth wrapped up in your uh, flocks and herds. Um, and of course, it was your source of meat, uh, of milk, of cheese, of, of wool and skin for clothing. Um, cattle were used also to plow the ground, to plant the next year's crops. Um, this is becoming significant. This is total financial ruin, not only on a personal level, but on a national scale. He can hardly paint a more dismal picture. This is, uh, maybe to try to push this in our context, this is, uh, though the oil field shut down completely uh, and every job come to an end, Uh, every stock in the stock market drop to zero and our bank account be wiped out. Though our heat and electricity go out and there be no gasoline left at the pumps, though our fields produce no harvest and every cattle drops dead of disease, uh, though our grocery store shelves are empty and barren and every government program dry up, this is it. This is like post-apocalypse kind of feel. This is, this is messy. This is disaster. And we've had just the slightest taste, if we're honest, over the last... Five months, restaurants have closed, and stay-at-home orders, and and social distancing, and mandatory face masks, and and some have lost jobs, and and, and many have hit different hardships. And I'm not saying that's not significant, and, and certainly some individuals have been hit much harder than others. But as a society as a whole, we've what we've really lost is just the very tip of the iceberg of our luxury, and it hurts. And it, and it causes us to question. But in the context uh, of the book of Habakkuk, this is so much more. He's pressing so much deeper. This is absolute ruin. And, and he uses this word, though, as if it's potential, as if it might happen. But, but again, looking at the context of the book, um, God told Habakkuk this was going to happen. This was coming down the pipe to Israel. 
He told them, I'm sending these, these wicked and vicious invaders, the Babylonians, they're going to wipe you out. They're going to destroy Israel. They would kill men, women, and children. They would burn down fields. They would cut down trees. They would take daughters for their wives. They would lead off fathers with hooks through their lips as slaves to a foreign land. They were about to be destroyed. It was going to be ugly. This is not theoretical in Habakkuk's mind. And Habakkuk responds saying, when these things happen, yet, yet I will hope in the Lord. I will rejoice. I will rejoice. He's not saying, I'll make it through. He's not saying, I'll keep a stiff upper lip. I will suffer quietly and press on. He says, I will rejoice. I will have joy. How can he say that? That that doesn't make any sense to us. We have such a hard time with this. We have a hard time finding joy when the Wi-Fi is down for half an hour, um, never mind complete economic social collapse. How could anyone have joy in the midst of a world that was crumbling? Well, because the foundation for his joy uh, is not in that crumbling world. His joy is not rooted in these things that are being taken away. It wasn't in prosperity or wealth or luxury or comfort. It wasn't in owning a nice home and a nice car and having a lovely wife and 2.5 kids. That's not what he's after. So rare today. So rare for people to really get this, to wrap their hearts and their minds around this and really grasp it. Our primary experience of good in this life, our our primary experience of happiness and comfort comes through earthly things. And so that's what we want. We want to be able to touch it and and feel it and hold it, and and we want it now. We don't want to to wait for, for someday. And that drive is so natural to us. That pull is so very strong, and and that's, that's why we have what we call the prosperity gospel. People claim to to love God and and know Christ, but but the foundation for their joy is still so rooted in this temporary world that that the only way they understand the goodness of God is if He gives them earthly things. The only way they they understand the goodness of God is is in healing and health and, and prosperity and wealth. And so they say, God is good, trust him, uh, he will make you rich. God is good, trust him, he will certainly heal you of any physical ailments. God is good, trust him, he will fill your life with ease and comfort. And they make these promises of worldly things. But look what they've done. Look at the logic of those statements. They've, they've taken the, the prosperity and physical wealth and health and made that the greatest good. They've made that the idol that they worship. And then they've brought God in as if he was going to help them in their idolatry. Their hope is still in earthly things. They just expect God to be uh, the tool, the servant to bring it to them. It's horrific. The foundation for their joy is still in these worldly things. And, and, and that's, that's clearest in this kind of uh, obvious prosperity gospel movement. But let's not think for a moment that that kind of thinking uh, doesn't work its way into our minds, you know, our hearts. It's when times are good, 
Right? When the, when the fridge is full or we're going on vacation, we just got that promotion or that raise we've been waiting for, that, that we sit back and say, Oh, God is good. And He is. And, and those are good gifts from Him and we ought to praise Him for that. But, but do we have that same confidence in the goodness of God in the lean times? In the hard times? In the times of suffering and trial? Our hearts so naturally measure satisfaction and joy and peace with an earthly ruler. But Habakkuk, Habakkuk's joy is not rooted in the things of this world. It's not rooted in the things of this world. He's, he's somehow pressed beyond that. He's, he's, he's moved that foundation elsewhere to the point that he's able to say, uh, even if all of these things are taken away, all of my security, all of my wealth, all of my worldly comfort, even if I'm starving to death, I will say, I rejoice. He has this firm foundation for his joy that is untouchable and immovable. Listen, we live in a broken, hurting world. It's messed up. We know that. Look around. What happens to your heart when the inevitable finally hits and the brokenness and pain in this world intersects with your life? When you lose your job, your bank account hits zero, when, when your test results come back and it's not good, when your perfect marriage hits hard times, what then? Where is your, where is your joy? I'm not saying we pretend like bad things don't happen. Right? This is not about um, ignoring suffering or just kind of slapping on a, a, a false grin and walking through life pretending like it doesn't hurt, like some kind of crazy person. Um, that, that is, by the way, the, the way the Buddhists would approach it. Suffering is an illusion. You need to just kind of rise above it. That's not important. It doesn't happen. It doesn't matter. Um, but, but remember verse 16. Look at Habakkuk. He's weeping. And mourning. He says, I'm so broken, I can hardly stand up. I feel like my bones have rotted out. He is deeply troubled by the darkness around him. But in the middle of that, at the same time, as he's grieving and weeping, he has a foundation for joy that is not shaken. And what is that foundation? How is it that he has this joy, that he is rejoicing even in the middle of sadness and suffering and pain? Well, if you have your Bible open, you know, because I stopped reading halfway through a sentence. His firm foundation for joy is the fountain of joy. That's point two, the fountain of joy. And what is this fountain of joy and, and peace and fullness and, and purpose and meaningfulness in his life? It, it isn't dependent on any secondary source. It is the very source of joy. Verse 18, Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. The fountain for joy is God himself. That's where he goes. That's his foundation. The Lord has put Habakkuk to the test here, and it's a test that he often puts his saints through, and I would watch for this and invite it in your own life. The crucial question here is, do you love me? Do you love me? Not just do you love the things that I give you, do you love the, the blessings that I pass down to you, but do you love me? 
And it might seem a little odd to you, maybe even cruel, like God is uh, egotistical or a little bit sadistic here. But this is actually the kindest thing that he could ever do. He, he knows how quickly we get wrapped up in these temporary, temporal things and, and how easily our hearts get set on the things of this world and how fragile and broken that is and, and how it will not only let us down and, and leave us feeling empty and disappointed and disillusioned, but it will ultimately destroy us. And so God sees us running after these things that, that will never bring us anything but pain and sorrow. And he cries out, no, don't go that way. Don't run after those things. Come back to me. I'm the fountain of joy. I am what will satisfy you and give you purpose and meaning and peace. This is really the heart of our sin problem. This is at the root of it. Jeremiah 2.13 puts it very well, for my people, God says, my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken the fountain, or sorry, they've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn out for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. We leave God behind, we walk away from this perfect life-giving fountain of, of pure cold water, the thing that we were created for, this relationship with him, and we dishonor him as we try to replace him with luxury, with comfort, with sex, with food, with drink, materialism, success, whatever it is. We, we try to fill that void. And those worldly joys, those things of the world, they're, they're broken cisterns. A cistern was a, 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 a basin or a pit that they would carve out of the rock in this arid country to try to collect rainwater through the rainy season and hope uh, that it would stay in there long enough that you could survive the dry season. And, and of course, by the end, it would be filled with flies and maybe a couple of rats and rotting frogs, but you'd scoop out your putrid, stale water because it kept you alive. But if your cistern cracked, if the rock you dug it out of cracked, that water would run out. And one day you would go out from your home thirsty and parched and you'd go to fill your bucket and the water's gone. And if you didn't have a fountain, if you didn't have a, a source of fresh water, you would die. That's it. And, and that's the, the reality of these things of the world. They, they promise to hold water. They say, come, I'll give you life. I'll sustain you. And you get there and they're broken cisterns. The water is gone. They don't deliver and so from time to time, God so graciously, lovingly takes those things away, and it's painful. It hurts as he, as he rips them out of the grip of our heart. But we need to learn to let go. We need to have those things taken away if we're going to find true satisfaction, if we're going to come and drink from the cool, fresh, flowing water of the fountain. You, you, can't, you can't come to the fountain and be satisfied while at the same time sitting in the bottom of a, of a broken cistern filling your mouth with dust. You, you can't do it. You have to leave one to come to the other. And God so graciously is stripping that away from Habakkuk. And he invites us to himself. Come to me. Come to the fountain. We see this consistently through Scripture. Um, these statements that are so counterintuitive for us, so, so outside of our natural thinking. Um, Job is a great example. God took everything from Job. His home, his family, his health, his wealth, it was all gone. And what is Job's response? Job 13, 15. 
Though he slay me, yet I will hope in him. What? Are you crazy, Job? That doesn't even make sense. Paul was afflicted with some kind of physical ailment on on top of all of the suffering and beating and hardships and hungers that he went through. Um, He had some kind of physical ailment. He doesn't tell us what it is, but he calls it a thorn in the flesh. And he pleaded with the Lord three times, God, take this away from me. God, take it away. God said, no. No, I'm not going to heal you. Why? Because my grace is sufficient for you. And so Paul says, then I will boast all the more in my weakness. I will rejoice. I will be happy in the middle of my suffering as I come to lean more on the grace of God. Later, uh, he would write Philippians 3, 7 and 8. Whatever gain I had, I count as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as lost because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Give it all away. Take it. I don't, I don't want it. I don't care. All of these things that I had once as a source of my, my pride and my joy and my security and my identity and my confidence, um, my whole past career and success, let it go. I don't want it. Put it away if it means I get Christ. I count them as loss in order to drink from the fountain. Why would I grieve the loss of a broken cistern if it brings me to the fountain? That's what it means to be a Christian. By the way, this is not some super spiritual uh, height that we're chasing after. This is at its root just what it means to repent and believe. To let go of the lies of, of finding our life and our, our joy in the broken cisterns of this world uh, and, and using and abusing the, the temporary things and then just believing Jesus, just trusting him. When, when he says, I'm the bread of life, whoever comes to me will not hunger. I'm the water, I'm the living water, whoever drinks from me will never thirst again. When he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and I came to give life and life abundant, we, we actually believe him that it's true. And we spend our lives seeking him through, through joyful, expectant obedience. That's it. We trust him. Ellen Gardner Uh, was an English missionary. 1851, he and six companions landed on uh, Picton Island off the southern tip of South America. They were not welcomed by the natives as they hoped they might be, uh, and they soon found their supplies running short. And over the next six months, um, one by one, they began to die of starvation. And Alan was the last one left alive. Um, We know that because he kept a journal through his whole experience and uh, it was later found uh, beside his deceased body. Having watched his six friends starve and die, having lost every worldly comfort, right down to food and water and the basic necessities of life, on the verge of his own death, uh, he made one final journal entry, and he wrote out Psalm 3410. Even... The young lions suffer want and hunger, but those who seek the Lord lack no good thing. He's starving to death, saying, I lack no good thing. And then he wrote these final words, his last words, I am overwhelmed with a sense 
of the goodness of God. His, his joy in the Lord didn't come from his gifts, didn't come from some earthly conduit. He was resting in finding his joy in the fountain, in God himself. The very goodness of God. He had a joy in the Lord that, that superseded everything else, that, that rooted in his understanding of God. Even as every worldly thing was taken away, he was able to say, I lack no good thing. I will rejoice in the Lord. So here's the question. Habakkuk, Job, Paul, Alan Gardner, are they insane? Are they crazy? Is it, is it reasonable to speak this way? Notice for Alan Gardner, for Paul, for Job, for Habakkuk, their hope in God was not in worldly things. It's not just what God uh, would make them comfortable in this life. Obviously, it was too late for that. Their hope was, as Habakkuk says, in God, my Savior. God is a, a Savior. But save them from what? Obviously not save them from pain and suffering. That's what we would so naturally pray for. God, save me from hunger. But Habakkuk says, hey, we're, we're basically going to be destroyed here, Israel. We're going to be wiped out. We're going to lose every luxury, every comfort. Most of us will die. Um, we're probably going to, to starve or be taken off to other nations. But God is a Savior. So in what sense is God a Savior? And here is where we see Habakkuk's footing of faith. He has this firm foundation in the fountain of joy, and that gives him this sure footing of faith. He was standing on the high ground. He was stable and secure, and it gave him this perspective that we so often lack. He said this. Let me read it. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on my high places. This phrase, God the Lord, uh, it, it, we're so used to seeing uh, Lord all caps in the place of Yahweh. Um, here it's not. The, the word God there translates Yahweh. This is God's covenant name. And it's literally Yahweh Adonai, the covenant God who is Lord, who is master, who is ruler. It's speaking of the mighty God, the one who is in charge. And he says, he is my strength. And that, that word for strength means to be firm, to be immovable, planted and secure. The heights um, were a significant thing in Israel's day. He, he leads me in the heights. He, he makes me stand on my high places. Um, if you were in a battle um, in that day, you wanted the high ground. You wanted to be up high. Um, it's really hard to fight a battle going uphill, and so the high place was defensible. And so buildings and, and castles and towns were built up on the high place. But from the heights, you can also see more clearly. From the heights, you can, you can look around and, and you have a, a perspective. 
And you can see what's going on around you, and you can react accordingly. You can see, oh, they're sending a battalion around behind us. We'll prepare for that. We'll be ready for that. You can see an army in the distance, or you can see rescue coming. And so the high ground, the mountain heights, were, were dangerous. It's far more treacherous to walk on the high ground than down in the smooth valleys. But if you can get up there and keep your footing, it's the safest place to be. And this is Habakkuk. This is, this is him now walking on the heights. He's like that ibex, climbed up the, the damn wall, and he's safe and secure. He has peace. He has a joy untouchable because from the heights where the Lord has brought him down this road of suffering, he has this perspective that we're so often missing, that God is a Savior. That God will most certainly save him, though not necessarily from worldly harm. But God will save him from the much more significant eternal harm. We so often want God to save us for the world, and, and what we truly need is for God to save us from the world. We want God to save us for the world. We need him to save us from the world. We, we think God saving us is giving us back to our, our broken cisterns, returning us to a place of comfort and, and security here. But from the heights, Habakkuk can see that, that God is actually using this pain and suffering in the world to remove those broken cisterns, to, to take them away and to draw Habakkuk to himself. That's the salvation that he needs. It doesn't take him out of the suffering. It comes through the suffering. We want God to, to save us and bring us to comfort and happiness. And God is saying, no, that's a false comfort. That's a, a fragile, dangerous place to be. It will not last. I love you too much to leave you there, trusting in the happiness of this world, walking through this life in, in comfort and false security, thinking you have all that you need when you don't have me. It is a soul to be pitied that walks through this life happy and comfortable and never drawn to trust in the Lord, never, never pushed to the point of seeking a, a hope that goes beyond the joy of this life. So God in his grace is saving Habakkuk from the comfort in these earthly things so that, that he might trust in the Lord so that he might find this joy that is complete, that is stable and abundant and eternal. Because not only does this world fail to bring us stable, lasting joy in the here and now, but in the end, when Jesus returns, when, when he comes back to, to finish what he started, to, to assert his final rightful rule, and, and the dead are raised and we stand in judgment before him, he is so clear. Those who have prioritized this world, those who have sought after the joy in this world, who live for themselves, seeking their good life in the here and now, who insist on refusing the fountain of joy, the fountain of living water, and running after these broken cisterns, um, they've not just made a foolish choice here and now, but they have actually dishonored God. It is a cosmic rebellion that deserves death. They will not only be without the Lord in this life, but far more significantly, they will be in the Lord's wrath for eternity. This is hell. That's why Jesus said, Matthew 16, 26, what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits its soul? 
What good is it to be Elon Musk or Bill Gates and have all the wealth you could ever want and buy every good thing and have perfect comfort if you forfeit your soul? Do you spend eternity separated from every good thing and in the presence of the wrath of God? That's why Jesus came to die on the cross, to take the penalty that we deserve so that, so that those who turn to him, those who will leave those broken cisterns and come to the fountain can be welcomed to the fountain, not kept out as treasonous traitors, but receive forgiveness. Have their sin wiped away, can come clean and, and, and be children of God rather than rebels And from the heights, Habakkuk sees how God is is not just allowing, but he's bringing these sufferings and hardships into his life uh, as part of this work of saving him, working out his salvation in Habakkuk's heart. It's his gracious tool to to loosen the roots of our heart from the things of this world and, and to deepen our roots in his goodness. We need this perspective. We need this footing of faith. One last story. You may know the, the story of Johnny Erickson Tata. Uh, as a young girl, um, she dove into a, uh, I believe it was a stream or a lake, and, and, and she hit the bottom and broke her neck. Uh, and she came out of that water as a quadriplegic, unable to use her arms or her legs. And she tells of, of laying in a hospital bed for months to follow and how people would, would visit and, and, and many from the church would come and offer to read scripture to her. And every time she would say, read John 5. Read John 5 again. John 5 is the story of Jesus coming down to the pool of Bethesda and healing the paralytic. She pleaded desperately for the Lord for healing time and time again. And God's answer uh, was consistently no. She went to every faith healer and miracle service she could find and was constantly passed over. Uh, It turns out they don't like quadriplegics there. They they prefer headaches and back pain and this strange condition of one leg slightly longer than the other. And she lived for many years without the use of her limbs and having chronic pain, debilitating pain, day after day. She tells of her battle with bitterness, with anger, with pride and doubt and grumbling and complaining and how hour by hour, day by day, year by year, the Lord used that suffering and pain in her life to shape her, to form her, to make her more like Christ, to make her love him more deeply. And after 30 years as a quadriplegic, more than 30 years, her and her husband made a trip to to old Jerusalem And having been pushed around in her wheelchair down the Via Della Rosa and and through the Garden of Gethsemane and around the Temple Mount, they turned down an ancient cobblestone street. And there in front of her is the quiet, empty pool of Bethesda that she had read about so many times. Let me read her words from here. She writes, And there I sat, alone, and I was truly alone, just myself and my Savior, tears streaming down my face. Oh, Jesus, thank you. Thank you for a no answer to a request for physical healing. You really knew what you were doing so many years ago because a no answer to a request for healing has purged so much sin out of my life. 
so much sinfulness and bitterness, and I know I've got a long way to go, but every day I want to wake up and I want to be a different Johnny than I was yesterday. I want to be a Johnny that you created and that you destined me to be. Oh God, help me to step into that a no answer, Lord Jesus, to a request for physical healing has meant that I'm dependent more on your grace. It's increased my compassion for others who are hurt and disabled. It has helped me put complaining behind me. It has stretched my hope. It has pushed me to give thanks in times of sorrow. It has increased my faith. It has strengthened my hope of heaven. And above all, it has made me love you so much more. So much more. And I would not trade it for any amount of walking. Can you imagine? Sitting there in the wheelchair beside the pool of Bethesda saying, thank you, Lord, for not healing me. Thank you, Lord, for 46 years of quadriplegia. Thank you for chronic pain and disability day after day. Because in and through that, I learned to love you more. The Lord was her strength. He was working out her salvation That's the view from the heights. That's the view from the top. When we trust him, when we we have this clear perspective that we only gain by trusting him through the suffering, through the to this firm foundation, this, this firm footing in the fountain of joy, as he leads us to the high places. Trust him. Trust him no matter what the the chaos, no matter what the pain of this world, no matter how messy and painful it gets. We seek that higher ground to see, uh, even through the deepest of suffering, that he is God our Savior, that he is at work, that he is uh, the fountain of our joy that we might declare, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, only you know the hurts and pains gathered here this morning. Lord, there are so many who walk in evil days. So many who struggle to trust you, who are hurting. Father, would you lift them up to the heights this morning? Would you help them to see that you are the God of salvation? That you are the God who works all things for the good of those who love you, who are called according to your purpose? that the sufferings of this world are not even worthy to be compared to the glory that awaits us as we learn to hope in you, to seek after you, to trust you, to love you more, to put our feet firmly on that foundation. Father, I pray for those who are not shaken, those who, who walk happily along unbothered and untroubled, Father, would you graciously take that away? In your kindness, would you help us to to move our hearts out of the things of this world and plant them firmly uh, in the fountain, to come to you, to see our joy and our hope in you? Lord, that in all things you might be supreme, in all things you might be lifted up and glorified, that we might rejoice in you and you alone, because you are the fountain of our joy. 
God, we praise you. We love you. And we thank you that you are the God of our salvation. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand? Let's close in song together.